listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I'm the host. The guest on this episode is Judith Black, but I call her Judy because I know her, and that's what people who know her call her. Judy was the photography professor at Wellesley College for 25 years, including the seven years that I worked there. She's a great photographer whose work centers around home and family life, and since Corona, she's released two books, Pleasant Street and most recently Vacation, and she has become one of the darlings of the photo book scene. She's associated with prestigious institutions of higher learning, has received one of the most competitive grants in the art world, and she probably has one of those world's best mom mugs. I describe her as a compulsive mentor because she seems to thrive when teaching or guiding people, but she's humble enough to acknowledge the people who supported and encouraged her along the way. While we were talking, she attributed much of her success to luck. Yeah, she's had some luck, but luck is not the whole story. She also said, you work hard to get lucky sometimes. Sound wizard Ed suggested that should be the subtitle of Feel Free to Deviate, and maybe they are both right. Just a note, Rob gets mentioned several times in this episode, but I don't believe we ever define who he is. Rob is Judy's man, and they've been together almost as long as Judy has lived in Cambridge, which is since her kids were quite young. I suppose that's another metric of success. Another note or clarification. We talk about Jewett near the end. Jewett Art Center is the building we used to work in at Wellesley. I make a little inside joke about not being able to change a tunnel or something. But nobody's going to understand the joke except for her. Because Jewett is the first building built in the modern style in New England, you need to consult a team of experts every time you want to paint a door or replace something. It's sort of annoying. Oh, also, I guess I should say happy winter holidays to all y'all. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Enjoy your Kwanzaa. Experience the solstice. Festivus is also a thing, kind of. Uh, Boxing Day? Whatever. Whatever you do, I hope that it's really great, and I also hope that all the other days and times of year are good as well. If you're feeling generous, go to feelfreetodeviate.com and click the Feel Free to Donate page in the menu. I feel sort of awkward asking for money, but making a podcast takes money and so many hours. And time is money, as they say. I would be grateful if you could slide some cash or satoshis my way. But, of course, you don't owe me anything. So if you don't feel like it, that's 100% fine. I just felt like I needed to mention it. Okay, let's get going with the episode. This is my conversation with Judy Black. Do your intro. Judy Black, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for making the time. The main reason I've asked you to be on the show is that your career is long, and it's still going. As far as I know, you started out in the Midwest, somewhere, you moved to Boston, you won prestigious grants, taught at prestigious institutions of higher learning, and now you're one of the photo book stars of the corona age. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you'd like that. Making myself a little crown. <laughs> I'm hoping you can fill in some of the blanks on how you made the various leaps and pivots in your career and maybe share some perspective. Can do. All right, good. So first of all, I guess I should just ask if you think of yourself as being successful. Uh, the short answer is yes. It just depends on how you think of success. Yeah, it does. These days, I think I'm still alive. My kids are still alive. Pretty good. We've, we're not on the verge of losing everything or anything like that. We're, we're okay. We'll be okay. And then you think about the career part of it. 
which is a different kind of success. And that success, which is what you're kind of getting at. Not necessarily. Okay. Well, it's a big part of it. I never dreamed that this would all work out the way it's worked out. When I was little and took art lessons from the lady down the street, this is in the Midwest, at age seven, eight, she painted our portrait. She was very good. She taught us about design. She taught us about the history of painting. We had little books that were about Picasso or Matisse, and you go, oh, God, if I could be Picasso. Mm-hmm. So that aspect to it, my grandmother painted a little bit. She did China painting. She was born in 1880. So young ladies learned how to paint their china for their trousseaus, and she was pretty good. So I would see her work, although she didn't ever really talk about it. And then there was a nun who, my grandfather was a physician, and I think he took care of the nuns. And somehow Sister Maureen, she knew the family. And as a second grader, I got to go out to the convent to see Sister Maureen in her classroom art space and just fell in love with the smell of manila paper and crayons. I still remember writing out in the car with packed with nuns and squished all together as a little kid. <laughs> that is a really, really nice image. <laughs> through high school, through college, through all sorts of things, we remained very good friends. She really was a mentor in the way we talk about mentors today. She just kept pushing, pushing me. Little bits, but beyond what I thought was probably doable. So, I don't know. I just went down a blind alley. (laughs) It's a good one, though. It's a good one. And it's funny because one of the words that you use is very prominent on my list of things that I wanted to discuss. I think that one of your key characteristics is you seem to have a chronic desire to be a mentor. Or at least that's my observation is having worked with you for seven years at Wellesley College. You seem to have a chronic desire to be a mentor. Well, that's the teacher part and sharing what you know and what you've learned. I don't know how you get around not doing that, but I guess people do. Well, you worked (laughs) with a lot of people. I think you could probably pick out a few examples of people who did not give a crap about being a mentor. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) No names, of course. No names. Anyway, Sister Maureen, was it? Yes. Maybe she's the, the genesis of the desire to mentor. I say that because not only did you provide mentorship for your students, but in some ways you were a mentor to me, but also any adjunct teacher who came along, you cultivated and and helped them. I feel like it's just like part of who you are. Well, and other people at Wellesley that mentored me, people in the art history department, Uh Alice and Pat, and they were the primary ones. Okay. I think there were others that were more in the background, like Jim O'Gorman, that appreciated what I did and thought I'd do a good job, and Alice for sure. Right. She had my back and many other people's backs. Once you receive some of that help, you want to, you say, this is, this is the way to do it. It was kind of the same with teaching. I had some teachers that I felt didn't do a good job mm-hmm. with the teaching, and it was like, I don't want to teach this way. Yeah. And then there are other people you, you learn from and you go, this is the way to do it. Right. So you learn f- from both sides what you want to pass on to, to other people. Yeah, whether it's positive or negative reinforcement. Exactly. I've never felt the negative reinforcement did much good. Yeah. 
telling people that they were no good. <laughs> no, there are ways to do it. And there are ways not to do it. I guess some people respond to that, but in general, it just seems bad. In general, it just it was not my mindset to do that. No, indeed. Um, you and Dave, yep, two of the best hires I ever made. Oh, so good. And I was listening to to Dave's interview with you about how he he got the job, and uh, there's a lot of luck involved in that. You know, making sure that that stayed in place was important to me. I hear you. And I actually, Dave was the third, the third episode I did. And one of the criticisms I've received is that we briefly go into what it took to get his job at Wellesley. Right. It was never actually explained. I'm not going to explain it here. Right. We can do a whole show about the craziness that that, that was. The three of us. It actually, that'll be really good to have three different perspectives on. Right. That would be good. Yeah, you you know, some of that negotiation is the person never finds out about it necessarily. Of course, of course. I mean, maybe by now he's probably heard something from somebody. It could be a whole podcast in, in itself. Your job when it came up was, you know, we threw it out there. It was partly communications people mm-hmm. uh, on the committee, whatever department, and the IT. IS, information services. Yeah, there was that. and. They kind of wanted to combine the position for all sorts of support. Yeah. And I said, no, these people who are just graduated with IT or whatever kinds of communications degrees, we want somebody with an art background. We want a recent MFA. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, ideally. (laughs) Ideally, somebody who knows photo and somebody who knows, you know, all the equipment. Yep. And I don't think you were the first choice. No? Oh. But the first choice declined, and you had called or left a message and said, I don't think I got the job, but if you could give me some feedback on what to do next, we said, okay, you're hired. Okay, right on. (laughs) And that was was perfect. So that's a message for other people, that calling to see if you can get feedback on what you could do better is essential for some success. Yeah, there was no message. I actually spoke with you, I believe. It could be. It was a long time ago. I remember the reason I was calling is because the job listing was bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> Beside, <all laughs> Could you stuff, do everything? Yeah. Well, also, but just like such weird things were on there that who who knows about Extron control systems? <laughs> oh, that was for video? Yeah. That was like the little boxes that are in all the classes that control the, the audio video equipment are called Extron boxes. Well, Extron <laughs> is the company that makes them. And they're like control systems and blah, blah, blah. And then also darkroom, and then also nonlinear video editing, and Mac computers or whatever. It's like the list was giant, and it was giant, and there were just really weird things on it, like Extron boxes. And <laughs> I was just like, uh, I have no idea what that is, but I know how to do all this other I stuff. I can learn. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. Eight years on, it was, great it job. Was, it was great quite job. A, it was quite a, quite a ride. The reason that I wanted to leave was mostly because of the fact that it was such a combination job and I just felt like I was being pulled in different ways yeah. and I just I didn't feel appreciated not necessarily by you guys but um about the college they were asking me to do a lot of stuff you know I was asking for more money and I wasn't getting it did I retire before you left no 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 no, no. I left and then I think you did a semester and then you went on sabbatical yeah I don't know it, you you ha- yeah. you were there for a year or two after I left yeah and one of those was his sabbatical year. So we both kind of left at the same time. Roughly, yes. It was always a hard battle because one of our colleagues was very jealous of the fact that photo and video had this support person. 
Yes, one of them was. (laughs) (laughs) She used to ask me for very weird requests, like, but you're here for the art department. She would be asking me to outfit her studio with a computer or something like I had the power to get computers. Right. <laughs> it's like, are you? Well, maybe there was more than one. <laughs> oh, there <laughs> Sounds was... like there might have been two. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Or three. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell one anecdote about not studio art, but about the art department in general. One of the things that I did while I was there was support visiting lectures. So if if some fancy art historian came from another school, they would bring their slides or their video or their whatever, and I would make sure that everything went according to plan. I would introduce them to the technology, blah, blah, blah. I would sit there in case anything went wrong and fix it if something did go wrong. But I remember one time at the beginning of a lecture, Lillian, lovely woman, introduced me to whoever was speaking that day. And, and then I, I realized she has no idea what I do here. She said, oh, this is Jim. He's he's the slide projector expert. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along. <laughs> Moving right along. I started talking about you having a desire to be a mentor. And I think we can come back to that later. Sure. Because the the counterpoint to that is that I feel like I have a chronic desire to have a mentor. (laughs) It's like the other side of the coin. But uh, I I also feel like I never never really had a proper one. But that's neither here nor there. That's just something that I noticed. Well, sometimes mentors, it can be very subtle. Yeah. And the mentor, I can, you know, if I used a different word, I wouldn't have used mentor as the word with this connection. But Robert Frank was the visiting artist for the first year I was at MIT in the grad program. And just listening to him, watching him, hearing what he had to say was the main mentor for me. So there was three weeks there. We had one or two private meetings, perhaps a few field trips, just how he interacted with everybody. And the few little things that he said were like the magic Dumbo feather. Yeah. It's like, okay. And then 20 years later, you go, he probably said that to everybody. He's already said it 50 times. 50 times. But it was just the right thing at the right time. He said, you know the pain, keep going. Well, what else can you do? You can quit or you can keep going. And so I kept going. And it was not a path that led straight to anything. But it it meant that somebody saw something, even if it was fleeting, that connected. Yes, there are other people who helped in a more practical way, like Alice telling me exactly what to do with certain things department-wise and yes, stuff like that. That is a different Very, type of mentorship. That's saving my ass more than once when I goofed up. But what you're talking about is somebody that says, yeah, 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 you're, you know, this is good. Keep going. Or this is bad. Yeah, that didn't work as well. No? No. That just means... You suck. Forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But it could be taken that way. I'm saying that because I remember one time someone someone read me their poetry, and I was just like, uh... (laughs) Maybe you might want to take a class. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know what I mean? Which, yeah. (laughs) You can't always just be blindly supporting. Like, I didn't didn't discourage them, but I, I was just like, you might want to do that again. Right. Well, that's the way to do it. You don't say, this sucks. And there are people who do that, who just are ruthless about their feelings about somebody's work. Yeah. I don't quite understand that. Because I'm not going to... I guess it kind of happened. 
in grad school. Yep. But there was enough counterbalance to it that it was it didn't deter me because Robert Frank said keep going. So, <laughs> <laughs> so top that one you it's a, like I actually chuckled to myself when you said that he was your mentor. I was just like, Oh well la di da Like I say, it was subtle. Yeah. I think Rob and I went to New York and visited him once mm-hmm. in the intervening late years. And I, I met him again when he had a, a, the Addison Gallery in Andover has all the prints from the Americans. And oh, nice. Visiting artists there. You know, a friend was teaching the high school there and she said, he's going to be in the gallery with the students at such and such a time. So I was like, okay, coming up and uh, sat and listened to him answer questions from the students and the other few people who were there. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, going up to say hello. Uh, I don't know if, if you remember me, but I was at MIT. Ah, it's a woman with all the children. Yes, that's you. You're the lady with all <laughs> that's the kids. Me. Yeah, that's that's me. <laughs> hard hard to forget that one, but you know, if you're Robert Frank, you could forget a lot of things. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> that was that was just special. I think other people would really actively cultivate a relationship with somebody mm-hmm. famous. And go and hang out, but that that never never really, I won't say it never crossed my mind, but I didn't ever attempt that with anybody. Well, it would feel kind of forced and awkward, wouldn't it? I, mean, I would think so, but you know, I think guys approach it differently. Plus, you know, I realize it's probably a little bit more loaded back then for a woman to say, "I'm going to come and hang out with you." Right. Some guys might think that was great, and some guys might back off just because. Yeah, that's not really something that I have to think about. Right. Or any guy, really. Well, if you were going to hang out with Nan Golden, that probably wouldn't be a problem. I'm not cool enough to hang out with Nan Golden. <laughs> no, but if you, you get the power dynamic. <laughs> yeah, no, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the innuendo yeah, of course. dynamic <laughs> that with somebody else um, might might be a little more complicated. Back then, maybe not so much these days. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so you're you're driving down the road with a with a car full of nuns, <laughs> yeah. all black and white. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so your introduction to art is through painting nuns. My dad was an engineer. My mom was a housewife. She could barely keep her head above water. I think. So she didn't do the painting and the drawing. She played violin for a little while mm-hmm. in high school, but I never heard her play. Oh. There were five kids uh, in a small house. So grandma and my aunt were the, the knitters, crocheters, dessert makers. And grandma had a few paintings and a few painted vases and whatnot. At her, you know, and as a kid, you just look at them and you go, wow. So I think there was an instant early, maybe not instant, but early attraction to the visual. My mom and dad didn't discourage it for us. It was valued in a very understated way. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, sure. The lady down the street who just graduated from the University of Illinois with an art degree, she can teach you some stuff. Of course, kind of like after school these days. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, okay, I'll send the three kids down to her house for an hour or two hours. So I can breathe, so I can play my violin. So, well, so I can take care of the other two. Oh, right. <laughs> we had pencils and papers. Okay, look, you can draw Mickey Mouse or something. My brothers played sports, so they had Little League baseball. They played basketball. One brother 
played for a little while for a college team. So that's kind of where they were guided because they were tall. Okay. And and my sisters tended a little bit more towards music, but I just kept going with the visuals. Did you get a camera while you were still there or did you pick up photography when you moved out to Boston? You haven't heard this story? I <laughs> If I did, I don't remember. <laughs> oh, okay, good. When I was about seven, my brother and I stayed with my grandmother and my aunt in their little summer cottage way up in Michigan. And it was a little resort town at the time. It was like heaven to be there out of the Illinois heat and to be with Grandma and Edie. That was not five kids running around, just two. We went to play bingo at the local hotel. That was a social event. So you went and played bingo. I won $7 playing bingo. Nice. And I went and bought a little brownie camera that had Hopalon Cassidy on the front. That is awesome. So that was my first camera. I think I vaguely remember liking in in National Geographic the pictures of the Leicas in the back. Mm -hmm. I have no idea why. Because everybody likes Leicas. But why that instead of whatever else they were advertising? But my aunt had, uh, she did the stereo realist where you would see 3D. Nice. And another aunt took a lot of pictures. The pictures were around. The camera was around. When we were little, we'd be able to put the slides in the viewer to see the 3D. Oh, yeah. Which is magical. That's pretty cool. I That definitely was not part of my introduction to photography, but it sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was. And then where my dad worked had a photo department. So a few times he would take the film from the brownie camera over and the guy at the lab would process it. So it, it was just kind of floating around in the air. Yeah. But I still gravitated more to drawing and painting and whatnot because it's number one, it's cheaper. It is. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. Than, and you don't have to wait for film. the results. Right. Yeah. And I kept getting better at it. So by the time I was in college, there was only one photo course. And the, the priest who taught at the college, he taught everything. He taught religion. He taught all the art history. He taught all the studio. So everybody was very well-rounded. They had this one guy's viewpoint. Right. And what else did he do? He was kind of the uh, architectural advisor for the the buildings on campus and whatnot. <laughs> so he, he was the Franciscan who could do everything. I guess he was kind of busy. He was busy. He was busy. <laughs> and he'd come in and he'd look. We had this little teeny studio space for the three of us art majors or four of us or whatever it was, all crammed into this little space. He'd come by, he'd look around, and, oh, just keep painting, you know, painting pretty pictures and trying the to, Trying to keep you busy so we could go check, inspect a building. Well, he's probably going back to the friary and have a beer. Oh, yeah, that too. Guy needs <laughs> so, a break. You know, he was a, a good man. Another person who didn't discourage. Here's, here's the thing. Another woman who was an art major a little before me, and I realized many, many years later, the one guy who came through the program, through the college, from Chicago, who was really good, could draw like a son of a gun. Mm-hmm. He got shuffled back to Chicago to a good art school. Oh. The women were not encouraged to do that. Oh, you're going to get married. And we got married and had babies. But okay, the follow-up is that we've both become fairly successful artists. We didn't give up. Did she also incorporate her babies into her work? No, not so much. She was more a painter. 
Okay. I don't think she did any photo stuff. I think there's some life stories that are embedded in some of her work. Probably. But she went on to do a lot of things, a lot of things, and she's still going at 80. Wow. Yeah. That's inspirational. I think family is one impetus, but it's as much a life story as it is about other people. Right. So I'm thinking of Rose's trauma in her family as a young child had to get worked through. And I think she did that in some of her work. I think it reverberates, now that I'm talking about it, reverberates in work that she's doing recently. I think life stories, life experiences, going right straight through school, if you want to be an artist, is not necessarily advantageous. I agree. And the more experience you have, ups and downs, give you something to talk about. I also agree. And I was talking to somebody last night who's a very good photographer, and her, you know, as they say now, her practice, <laughs> quote unquote, uh, process of art making. Yep. She was a commercial or editorial photographer for a long time, so traveling to take pictures on assignment and working in that mode is totally foreign to me. I don't go any place to take pictures necessarily because of my family responsibilities. Was also always at home, or if I traveled, it was to visit family. Yeah. Like my dad, my sisters, Rob's family. So in talking to Tammy last night, I was like, I am not going out to take pictures, but I have a lot on the hard drive. Uh-huh. And someday I'll get around to working with him. So how did you get to Boston? Well, we're in the Midwest in Illinois. Got married right out of college. Had a baby and lived for a year in Ohio. And then my husband then got a job in Fitchburg. Oh, classic. And teaching speech. He was a, a drama person. Oh, okay. And then he added on counseling. So we were in Fitchburg for a while. The other three kids were born in Fitchburg and moved from Fitchburg to New Hampshire and then divorce and I needed to earn a living. Got accepted into the MIT program. Prestige. Well, it was the first year they had the program. Yeah. So between you and me, I think they had three applicants. No way. Come on. Come on. How, how could they have three applicants if Robert Frank was there? He, was, he wasn't there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there were other people who were there. And it was, I mean, it was before the internet. How would you find out about something that? was just starting. You would have to tell me because I have no idea. Yeah, you know, it's like word of mouth. Oh, I hear so-and-so is going to have a such-and-such. Right. And, there was no newsletter? Uh, no. <laughs> no newsletter. Where are <laughs> no. the famous photo people? <laughs> <laughs> Who should I study with? Exactly. Um, I was, you know, there, uh, RISD. I think there was one other place that I applied to. Given that that point I was in my 30s, Older students are valued, I find out. I valued them. Can I, can I just say that when I was at MassArt, the young grad students were not very interesting. I'm not saying that they weren't good artists or, or whatever. It's just that obviously other people had more experiences. Some of them even already had degrees in other things, and they were chock full of information, and you could access them far easier than you could even access the staff. Right. So I was that older person, even though I knew virtually nothing about photography. I had a little dark room. I did 35 millimeter. I took wedding pictures. I took kids' school pictures. I did all sorts of stuff like that. Actually, I did a few births. Damn. So, you know, with the divorce, it was like, okay, what? How am I going to do this? Maybe I'll be a midwife. Not. No. 
you can't leave four kids by themselves. No, too. oh no, right, right. I so guess. that was like, uh, duh. <laughs> you need to hire a nanny so you could be a right. midwife. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. So I got into the MIT program and moved to Cambridge, and we're still here. Isn't that sort of the same thing, though? You you go into a graduate program and you have four kids? I, I can't even imagine what... I don't know how we did it. It's insane. That's crazy, Judy. We had kids and, and no money. Yeah. I had... And you're in Boston. I mean, I guess it was a different time in Boston, but dude, Boston... I just called you dude. I'm sorry. Boston, Boston is not a cheap place to live. <laughs> or even Cambridge. You're in Cambridge, even. I'm in Cambridge, but Cambridgeport was not the desirable spot. Cambridgeport was a ghetto. Oh, okay. So this was before it was... Uh... Yeah, this was 79. And it was the verge of condo conversion. I think we might have been the first one. And some some wonderful lady who wanted to help women had this three-unit kind of Victorian house. And somehow I was in touch with a real estate lady who said, this woman will give you a first mortgage. Just go to the bank and get refused. Now, why this woman thought that was a good idea, I have no idea. <laughs> Except that if she's converting to condo, then there's capital gains. Okay. So if she's the bank, she avoids capital gains. Pretty smart. Yeah, it was smart. Was that like a normal thing? Was that like a, a system hack that everybody was doing? Because that's I've never heard I of this. I have no idea. <laughs> I was, she apparently got good legal advice. But on the other hand, I, the bank said, we don't know why we even took your check. <laughs> No, for real. So she gave us the first mortgage, but there were holes in the wall. And the lady across the street would sit on her porch with her phone next to her, watching the neighborhood to call the police in case anything happened. Built-in security system. Built-in security system. She probably also picked up packages. I don't know if you had packages delivered then. No, we didn't have packages then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice. Um, yeah, it was a very mixed neighborhood. Uh-huh. The school was... A block away and we were a 15 minute walk to MIT and there was parking on the street at MIT. I could get back and forth quickly. Proximity to these things is priceless. The short walk to school is priceless. I couldn't find any other place to rent either. Yeah. If you said, I need three bedrooms for four kids, they hang up on me. Yeah, right. So, or even just kids. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a lot of luck involved in all these stories. It was like, I was lucky to get in the program. I was lucky to get the house. I was lucky to do a lot of things, but you work hard to get lucky sometimes. Of course. And I think getting lucky with with the house was just getting lucky. <laughs> I didn't work real hard to do that except be in dire need. Whoever you talked to who who drove you in that direction, I guess it just goes to show you you know, talk to whoever. Right. It was somebody I took wedding pictures for. Her mother's friend was a real estate person in Boston, and she said, here, call this lady. So I did. Well, you never know who's going to be a connection. Exactly. So that's how I got to Boston. Okay, so now you're in Boston and you're doing grad school. Yeah, it was a, a master's degree program started by Minor White called the Creative Photo Lab. And he had died by the time I got there, two or three or four years. But MIT had these little pockets of the humanities that one of the presidents decided the engineers needed to be humanized. So he brought in Ricky Leacock for film and video, Minor White for photo, Gregory Kepish for something, uh, Center for Advanced Visual Studies, Muriel Cooper for design, visible language workshop. I think there's another one. I forget what it was. But they were all people who were established artists as well as proficient with technology. So they were kind of inventors. Although Minor 
his invention once he got there was to meditate and creative dance and a few Jungian whatever. Yeah, he got very spiritually oriented rather than zone system oriented. I was unfamiliar with that aspect of his work. We did a lot of teaching and, and mentoring with once he was in this area. He had workshops and a lot of people took workshops separate from MIT, but then he was the teacher at MIT running this program. And it stayed pretty entrenched in darkroom-based photography. At some point, people who were teaching were encouraged to make it an official program rather than an independent nature <laughs> for engineers who decided they weren't going to continue with engineering the rest of their lives. They wanted to do photography. So there are a, good, there are a number of those people who've done very well. The two years I was there, Robert Frank was the second semester, three-week visiting artist, the next year was Lee Friedland. Yeah, I remember. You, I remember you told me about some story about Lee before, and uh, yeah, uh, you, you could. They were very different. Oh man! <laughs> Needless to say, legends though. I mean, legend, absolute <laughs> legends. It's you know, and learning different things from from each of them. Yeah, I can imagine. This whole time, were you compulsively documenting your family, or did that start as a? Were you like trying to find your your niche? How did that come about? Well, it started out trying to find my niche as I walked to school with very blurry pictures and these things that were the the Jungian symbols of my inner conflict, <laughs> upheaval, a traumatic kind of uh, time in life with a divorce and and uh, trying to deal with my ex-husband and the kids. And Rob has gone off to South America for six months, and it was like, well, we'll see what happens when you get back. So the pictures were kind of 35 millimeter, maybe a blurry, maybe this, maybe that. But I realized I wasn't going to go out on the street and do street shooting because I needed to be home. Babies. Babies. And I took a photo history class over at museum school with Jim Dow because we could cross-register. And it was his 19th century photo history, which I knew nothing about. And he was, you know, going on about, well, these old cameras, you just took the lens cap off and you put it back on. I was like, duh, yes, my apartment is very low light. I can put the camera on the tripod and take a long exposure. And I started doing that with myself because, you know, I was dealing with so much loss and trauma. Yeah. Uh, of the losses, a uh, friend died, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff. And I think I probably cried for two years, but facing that dead on with a camera was like, okay, I can't look at that one, can't look at that one, you know. Oh. And then I finally showed it. It was a picture that, you know, I'd taken a few self-portraits before, but putting the two-and-a-quarter camera on the tripod, setting a self-timer and running around and getting it focused and everything and holding still. That was the beginning of the, the family pictures. You know, you finally realize, okay, I'll show it to somebody, and it's not somebody else's trauma. That's an interesting picture. Do more. And then they're, yeah, they're just, this is your work. Yeah, and I guess it just kind of grew from there, also with the kids in front of the camera. The tripod made it more formal. But it also meant that I could use a 15th of a second rather than a 30th or a 60th of a second. So the blur started to work. And they could hold still for a 15th of a second. But you can't smile. You trained them well. <laughs> and just taking advantage of what little light came in on different seasons of the year. Yeah. You learn as you go. 
sometimes intuitively you know which ones are your best ones, partly because you relate to them, but also because other people relate to them, Yeah, which is what you want. Otherwise, you wouldn't show anybody what you're doing. You just keep them in your house. Right. I moved along pretty fast with that. And there was another seminar that I went to through museum school. It was also very good. It was a bigger group. There were probably 10 people in it, and there were at least three or four women of the same kind of age as I was with little kids. So that was kind of a bonding thing. The MIT group, Bobby was pretty young, fairly unattached. He had a girlfriend. Hideji was from Japan, and his English was not very good. And there was me, who knew virtually nothing about photo history or contemporary photography much at all. And the two people who team taught, two on three people. And it was, you know, it was just difficult. Yeah. The crit, crit kind of work was hard. But the other seminar gave me a little bit more of a community that was reinforcing. When you're on a short deadline of knowing you've got two years to make the best of it, and you have life experience, you move ahead. You can move ahead fast. Indeed. And then you graduate and you say, now, now what, what am I going to do? <laughs> now, you, now you are a master of fine arts. Congratulations. <laughs> Which means nothing. <laughs> you could adjunct teach, maybe. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. And I was here again lucky. One of the women who worked at MIT lab, you know, if you do weekend lab duty, you can use the darkroom kind of thing. So Kathy had gotten a job at Horus Color Lab. Uh, the legendary. The legendary, across from Fenway Park. The black and white printer is going to take a leave of absence for health reasons. Uh, come on over. So I did four twenty-five an hour insurance. That's the good stuff. <laughs> it had health insurance. That's good. That's how, That's important. So I had to have the health insurance. And, um, you know, I learned a lot. Yeah. I learned a lot. Kathy and I were in that dark room printing, you know, 500 pictures of Bobby Orr, four by fives for him to sign. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We need these by tonight. Okay. Okay. Um, glass plate negatives from Brad Washburn. I don't know who that is. He's the guy who did all the mountain stuff for the Museum of Science here in Boston. Oh, okay. You'd recognize the pictures if you saw him hanging out an airplane taking these 8 by 10 glass plates. That is uh, some manly stuff. Yeah, manly stuff. <laughs> who else? This guy who did all the old tombstones around New England. Oh. Uh, and, yeah, so just this vast array of things that would come through for black and white prints. It was interesting. I was there for two years. I thought it was much longer because, like, I feel like you have a lot of Boris stories. Well, I do have a lot of Boris stories. It was pretty interesting commercial place. I mean, it was, but thank God they hired me. How do you go from that to working at Fancy Pants Wellesley College? Well, there was eight years in between. Ah, okay. And my friend Vicky, who worked at Boris as a color spotter for a little while, mm -hmm. got this job at Brandeis. I can't remember exactly. She must have seen an ad or something. She got a job at Brandeis in one of the science labs being there basically photo secretary. Mm. You need a slide for a talk. You need a print for a publication. Whatever you need, the photo person was there. And the interesting part is the guy who was doing the hiring for this position had gone to MIT, and I think he took courses with Minor White at the Creative Photo Lab. The connections. So he valued the artistic part of it. In fact, most of the scientists there did because their research was about the visual. It was like, 
what does this coronavirus look like and how does it move? Right. So this was 40 years ago. So that basic research has fed the development of these vaccines. Oh, crazy. Yeah. You need to know how this little organism, whatever it is, you need to know what it looks like and how it works, how it physically expands and contracts or what it, how it attaches to something or doesn't attach. That's what they were working on. Not this specific one, but just those kinds of things, how you see the unseeable. So anyway, Walter was in charge of this position. Vicky was leaving and she said, come on out, you can have this job. So I got lost on the way to Brandeis. Oh, I went there twice and I got lost both times. And Walter said, you know, well, everybody gets lost. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no cell phone to say, you know, I'm late. No GPS. You're just driving around, driving around, saying, I think I went this way already. Um, so I finally made it. They hired me. And I was there for eight years. And again, a, an incredible experience of meeting people from all over the world mm -hmm. whose brains you just can't imagine. They were just really interesting wonderful group of people to work with. Here's the good story in here. Somebody, a friend said, Museum of Modern Art just bought two of your pictures, but you know, I think Sarkowski probably does something with the Guggenheim fellowships. You should apply for a Guggenheim. So I put something together, you know, you say, okay, if Emmett Gowan's wife, Edith can do this for him, I guess I can do it. So I put in an application thinking, you know, why not? Why not? It won't happen, but why not? But I got one. Yeah, you did. And so, therefore, the road trip, which is now a book, kind of, part of a book. The funny part is that I'm at work and somebody comes around and says, we found you. <laughs> the Guggenheim people tell the institution people that their professor got a Guggenheim. It's procedure. That's what they do. And they said, no, we don't have anybody here by that name who teaches here. Right, right. <laughs> so they, it took them weeks to find me <laughs> in, the, in the science lab. Mm -hmm. That's kind of awesome. That was awesome. That was fun. I could only take six months, so I didn't have a whole year I, because that's all I could be away from the job. Well, you weren't a teacher, so why would they give you extra time? Right. And <laughs> anyway, we bought a car and went cross country. And then I started part-time teaching at Wellesley through a contact who was at the Creative Photo Lab and then was at Wellesley and kept encouraging me to do these things. So when he left Wellesley, I kind of slipped into his slot. This is where Alice comes in because she they had to make a tenure track and she, she helped me kind of figure that whole thing out. So there wasn't a major search or anything? No, they did do a search. They had to do a search. But I think she was instrumental in the background of saying, this is who we want. Right. And over overriding some other people's opinions. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's good at that, though, I, if I remember correctly. She can be rather Machiavellian. <laughs> Dismissive, even. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed working with her. Oh, yeah. Her heart is in the right place, and she's super smart. But anyway. Yeah, so then I segued to the... Full-time teaching. You know, worked hard, but got, got lucky and got tenure. And then got to work really, really hard. <laughs> got, got lucky? What do you mean, got lucky? Well, there are a lot of people out there who wanted that job. Everybody wants a, a full-time tenure track teaching gig or photo gig. With lot, lots more prestigious 
resumes than mine. Certainly. But that's the thing. It, like I talked before about how you seem to have this chronic desire to be a mentor. I don't know how that factors into the decision to give you tenure, a tenure track position, but I feel like Dave is sort of similar in that he is a good teacher. He's a good teacher. He's there for the students. He takes time to get involved with them and their projects. I think that's, that's a, a Wellesley value. But it's not. Well, well yes. Whether I think everybody does it is... To different degrees. And I feel like the degree to, that you and he engage in that sort of behavior is relatively high. And I think in general, with artists being educators, there's a lot of, I just need to get a teaching job because I need insurance and I need a salary to push my work forward. And it's not that you guys don't push your work forward. It's just that you also take the jo the actual job very seriously. And I don't see that in a lot of art educators. That, that's sad. I think it is sad in multiple ways, actually. Yeah, because I think, you know, I, I don't want to defend Wellesley too much, but as an institution, that is one of their, they look at your teaching. Yeah. They value that because that's what they sell. Yes. And it works. Sure. Not all institutions do that. I'm way out of it, but I see that the number of adjuncts just increases and is talking about across the country. Tenure is a good thing and a bad thing. Agreed. But there has to be a happy medium in between. You need to be able to speak your mind without getting fired. Right. Which is kind of on the table these days. Taking advantage of the system by not doing the job fully. It's also not an, you know, that's just not good if you're getting paid a lot of money. It's very bad. I think it's very bad. I'm not talking specifically about Wellesley here, although no, I, can't, I, I can't think of some examples about Wellesley. I'm talking about the system in general. Having right. Agreed. Much of my social life when I was in Boston was hanging out with these people who were in the basically like a migrant farm work, worker system yes. for educated art experts, like a shark feeding tank. They're just, there's a job here. And then because I wasn't involved with that whole thing, I would hear how secretive some of them were about it. Like they didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want that one to know that there was a job because they were worried that that one was going to get it over them. Or they were, <laughs> it's like this, it's crazy. It's like this horrible soap opera. Right. It, I didn't experience that because I was... Uh, too busy with other things. You know, I knew that was out there. I was like, I can't do the part-time teaching. So you just went and got a full-time tenure track position at a fancy college <laughs> instead. That was that was the only other option. So I, I'm glad it worked out for you, Judy. <laughs> I, I, I excel. Luck plays a big part in this. It's not just luck, though. That's the thing. No, <laughs> it's not just luck, but it's people looking out for you. And if that guy who was part-time teaching at Wellesley hadn't left and not come back, Okay, so there's a little bit of luck, but there's good timing. Timing? Yep. Who knows? I might have had to move back to I don't know where. By that time, we were pretty established in Cambridge with the kids and Rob's job and whatnot. All right, so you worked at Wellesley for a really long time. About 25 years. 25 years. Yeah, which is not that long compared to other people. No, but it's, 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 a, long, it's a long time. It's weird to refer to you as being retired because you are still <laughs> working and... Okay. Here's the next lucky story. Well, you're finally, you're, 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 you're making books and, and like, they're very, very well received. I can't believe it. I can. Well, I'm really pleased. It's been the COVID success story. The lucky part is that the publisher found me. How? Mark Steinmetz had written an article a bunch of years ago about a number of women in the Northeast whose work was under-recognized. Oh, okay. And I okay. was one of them, a little blurb. And 
The publishers in England, Greg and Rachel of Stanley Barker Books, they published Mark Steinman's work, and they saw this article, and they looked on my website, and they got in touch with me. It was in 2017, let's say September, whatever. I had a glitch in my email, and it wouldn't send a message because it goes through the Wellesley system and a Google. It was crazy. Oh, okay. yep. So I start poking around trying to, and all of a sudden, emails come flooding in <laughs> that I thought I had trashed. Uh-huh. And so I hit stop or whatever I did and started looking through them going, okay, this is all garbage. And one said something about, we'd like to work with you, publish book or something. It was from a publisher. And I thought, okay, this is one of those, they want you to pay for it. Yeah. Some kind of weird vanity press thing. Yeah. But I read it and they said, we saw your work online and we really like it. We'd like to work with you if you'd be interested. So I'm scrolling. I checked it out and yeah, they Ted published Sage So here and mm-hmm. Mark Steinmetz and other big names and a lot of unknown names. So I knew they were legit. Yeah. And then I'm scrolling on the on the email and it's like there's another message that says, We didn't hear from you, hope all is well. Oh man. And I realized they're from a year before. Check the dates. The first one was from 2017, and then there's 2018. And I'm reading it and going, oh, shit. <laughs> so I polite response to this wonderful work. I have no idea why I didn't see this before. I And I still don't. I have no idea. Because I'm pretty good at email. Yes. And so you do wonderful work. Of course, I'd love to work with you, but I'm sure you're very busy. Sent it off, and they got it back immediately. No way. And said, yes, we still like to do it. And so in a matter of months, we had a book. That is so cool. Just back and forth on internet. And um, we were in Italy to watch the printing because I said, you know, this isn't going to happen again. And we got back February 29th. Oh, snap. Snap. Closed (laughs) down. We just made it out of northern (laughs) Italy. Oh, (laughs) damn. Without getting sick or quarantined someplace. We were really very lucky. So we made it back and quarantined immediately, and here we are. The first book, Pleasant Place. No, Pleasant Street. <laughs> Pleasant Street. <laughs> Pleasant Street. Well, we moved from Pleasant Street to Pleasant Place, so I get confused. Pleasant Street amazingly sold out in a number of months, mm-hmm. which shocked both the publisher and me. <laughs> and <laughs> It's a pleasant surprise, though, right? <laughs> absolutely. So they said, do you want to do another one? So we, we did another one. And um, I'm just amazed and overwhelmed and pleased and learned how to do a lot of things on Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you got to do your marketing. I wish I was better at it. It's all about the likes and keeping your name fresh on Instagram and in Facebook. And I'm not as good at it as other people, but that's okay. Ah, but you were all over. The- you were getting good press. You were all over the place. I was. The other thing is they do the PR. Oh, that's good. Do they have a dedicated person? Well, the woman, Rachel, does most of the PR, and the, Greg does the, the actual bookmaking part. Yeah. So between them, she's got all these contacts, and I see that the bookstores and the publishers in UK and the EU, they have their networks. Some of it feeds to the US, but we don't have as many photo bookstore dedicated places. There are only a few. You know, that's where you generate your reviews or PR that goes to Aperture. They know who to tap for what kind of book and who's going to write something interesting. Or They don't write bad stuff. 
<laughs> they're all right good stuff. You know, bottom line is they all want to sell books. Are you going to do any shows or anything? Has that been talked about because of... Uh... I talked about it with somebody in, in France, a woman who really wanted to do an exhibit in, in France, but it's really hard to get backing and figure out how to do it during COVID because everybody's schedules are two years delayed. Oh, I, I know it's really... It's really uh... Marlene designs exhibition spaces. So there was a period where she just had nothing and nobody would, not that they wouldn't talk to her. Yeah. They were just like, we don't know if we're going to have money. So we, we can't even think about this. And we don't know if we're going to open the doors ever. Yeah. But then when they did, all of a sudden she's crazy busy. Yeah. So Greg and, and Rachel do a tremendous job. They know their market. They do a bit of older work. Yeah. You know, they kind of focused on black and white a bit. People who have a body of work that should be seen, mm -hmm. and they they go for the pictures and not the text. Yeah. With other publishers, you've got to have a big name to write for you. Right. And that always put me off. Yeah, it'd be nice to have a book, but I have to draw this work <laughs> and find somebody who's going to write about it. Who do who do you ask? So I just never did that part. But their books have minimal text. You kind of have to fight for five hundred words. Which is fine with me. I'm I'm good for the 500, but beyond that, forget it. They don't want titles next to the images. Okay. So the titles are always in the back, if there are titles. Right. He knows what his market is, and they're also a thousand copies, and they don't do a reprint. Oh, they don't. If they do something like a reprint, they change something, so it's... It's a collector's item. Right, right, right. At 50 or 60 bucks, it's a collector's item, so people can... Okay, I'll get another one by Jim Goldberg. Right. It'll be a little bit different. So that's how they get around that. Or they just do another book. They've they've done well. They've done well with their, their lineup. They've gotten a name for themselves as a, a niche publishing. And you did a second book, and it's uh, it's doing well as, also? Well, it didn't sell out four months. <laughs> four months is... Yeah, it's, a... <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. But they, figure, they also figure that they're going to do the majority of sales in the first so many months. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Because the people who are interested are looking for it. Right. I think they know what they're doing and I wish them all the luck. Yeah. To sell as many books as they can. because This is a hot time for photo books. It is. It's so expensive though. Well, compared to buying a print. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. <laughs> in the collectibles kind of world, it's a cheap alternative. And you could, you know, you could double your investment from a 50 bucks to a hundred. <laughs> How many of the people who are buying these books do you think are buying them as an investment? I think there are a number, but the investment returns are minimal when you think about it. Okay, my kids are going to inherit this photo book collection. Right. Hmm. That'll get them through three months. Our mutual friends, Sarah and Andrew, between Andrew's record collection and their book collection, I can't even imagine. The house is going to fall through the sink row. <laughs> it's hole. insane. I know other people like that, too. Yeah. This friend, Steve, in Milwaukee, or in Madison, who was, you'd like his work. Oh, yeah? I'll send you a link. Please do. And he's quite a funny guy. I like funny guys. Yeah. His pictures are pretty funny, too. And serious at the same time. As um, it should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he collects books yeah, and records. Yeah, books and records. Yeah. In their little plastic slip cases. And... You can get into that to varying degrees. Right. Some people are meticulous uh, archival collectors and some people are just active listeners. And some of us have stuff that we go, 
I better get rid of this before my kids oh, have to man. get rid of it. My uncle died, and I have a bunch of his stuff. When we moved over here, I took a bunch of his stuff over here because I'm an idiot. I have stacks and stacks of slide carousels and boxes and boxes of of slides. Like I slowly digitize them. It's such it's such a ridiculously painful process, and and I just lose interest in it. So I I do a ton of them, and then. I stop. And then a year later, I'll do a ton of them and then I'll stop. But I was I was going through these pictures of all these people and I have no idea who they are. And I'm thinking, who the hell is this? I realized that it was, it's his dead uncle's photographs. How horrible is that? Family history. And you can't throw them away. Don't tell anybody. I did throw some away. There are a lot of duds, let's just say. Yeah. Well, you keep the best ones. Yeah, exactly. I'm keeping the best ones. If it's a picture of the Eiffel Tower, it goes out. Well, not even that. Just like a bush or a flower. Like I'm just... Exactly. Uh, we, got, we got those covered on the internet. Exactly. Look, my mom is always asking me or, you know, whatever. Anyone will be like, oh, did you take pictures on vacation? And the pictures that I took on vacation have nothing to do with the place, really. Why the hell would anybody take a picture of the Eiffel Tower? There have been 8 million beautiful pictures of the Eiffel Tower taken. And like those people thought about it and they sat there and they waited for the light and they did all the things. I'm not going to do that. Right. <laughs> And every time you go, you take the same one. Yeah, no, for real. I love the Eiffel Tower. I, I would go there and hang out there all day. I might take a snap, but I'm not going to set up and take a serious picture of the Eiffel right. Tower. <laughs> That's just a waste of my time. I'm going to go find a baguette or something. or, or a, Yeah. Or, <laughs> or some exotic pastry or sausage or something. The eclairs are wonderful. I like eclairs. For some of us, it's like, okay, what do we do with all these negatives? Oh, God, it's so awful. Who will take them? Our kids... Might take them, but nobody has room for them. I'm running out of room. Yeah. I don't even take photographs anymore. Now I've, I've got a massive 12 terabyte RAID that is, I think there are 10 terabytes filled. That's a lot, Jim. There's a lot of double stuff on there. Like I really need to go through. But, you know, you start off, you have something, this massive storage device, and you think, oh, I'll just throw it on there. And then one day it's almost full, and, and you don't know what you can throw away. And it's, it's I know. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm a digital hoarder. But, yeah, I have I have to do some cleaning out. So many prints, Hopefully. so many negatives, so many dead uncle's slides. Yeah. So looking back over the years, you've had this illustrious career, interesting path. Uh, yeah, interesting. I don't know. Should I use the word interesting? No, it's good. A varied and intricate path. Or maybe it's not even that intricate. You, you know, you follow you follow these things as you go. Well, it's an unusual path. It is. And you find your mentors. You learn how to mentor. You go and you you go through this extreme period of mental duress. And I, I, I have two kids and and a very, very active and supportive spouse. I can't even imagine supporting children, going full-time to a graduate program, and dealing with the actual children. Well, they might not have the same story that I do. <laughs> you know, it's a survival thing. Uh, you just you put one foot ahead of the other one every day and yeah. say we made it through the day. Everybody's here. Yes. Not too many, too, too many traumas. There's there's a part of the equation that I don't talk about too much, which is their father. Yes, I know a little bit about that. That was that was very traumatic for all of us. Uh-huh. Uh, trying to balance that out with other stuff was... Uh, well, that's what I mean. Like, the, like, aside from the fact that it's physically grueling, there's a mental component to it. And just the exhaustion that comes with raising small children, it's intense. And then you have this high-pressure environment where you need to achieve academically and and you need to go to work. Yeah. I, I, have, I have no idea how it all came together 
the way it came together. And you make the best of it. You keep attributing luck to a lot of your success. I mean, I guess the ultimate success being that your family is happy, healthy, and alive (laughs) thus far. (laughs) So far. (laughs) Even with some challenges along the way. And you worked in the lab for 425 an hour, but working your way through the education system and then getting a job at a place like Wellesley. Wellesley is, you know, they are no slouches in the salary department. You, It's like- Better than most. It's like this great reward just achieving that, achieving the tenure track or the tenure position is- It was a biggie. Yeah, I would consider that incredibly successful just because it's it's so it's so hard to do it. And, and I've seen my close personal friends go through the, that process and I know how mentally grueling that is. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like climbing mountains. It was a little grueling. Yeah. But now I feel like getting this recognition through the books is just this wonderful, this wonderful, I don't want to say it's like a dessert because, you know, you can keep, keep doing it, but you've, you've had a very full career and, and, and you're getting recognized for it. I would, I would have been very happy the way without the books, but I'm more happy with the books. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Because they're just, they're just so nice to look at. I think it's a really lovely book. I mean, I've seen almost all of these pictures before, I think. Probably. But but still, it's nice to see them collected in a place and not on a website. Right. My clunky website. But, but it's not even yours. Just any. It just, it's like, you know, it's just nice to look at photography not on a website. Right. Especially for the past couple of years, which is predominantly how I look at photography because I can't afford books because I'm unemployed. <laughs> But I also I also don't have space for books. So I know I, but, I could afford them, but it's like I don't have that much more space. They take up a lot of space, and you can't go to the library these days. No, <gasps> I can't even get in the Jewett facility without jumping through some hoops. You don't go through there and say, "Do you know who I am?" <laughs> Bring me your yeah. supervisor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work here. <laughs> I'm kind of a big deal around here. <laughs> I know every tunnel. <laughs> exactly. Between Jewett and Noel, I don't anymore. But Well, the, the 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 good thing is you probably do know every tunnel because they can't change anything because it's an important building. <laughs> oh, I just thought of something. We were going over the long career thing and I, I guess I just I guess I just want to ask in hindsight, how do you feel about your work life balance historically and now? Um, I suppose I got to think a minute. Now it's just great. (laughs) I could do whatever I want. Yeah. But, you know, when the kids were little, I guess the good part was that I was able to figure out how to make the work part of making pictures, not the job part, the work part of making pictures fit with my family life. That's a good one. They were entwined. There was no pressure to go out and walk the streets to make pictures or to go to, you know, an exotic location to make pictures. It was at home, metaphorically and realistically. Yes. The job parts, by the time I was fully employed, it worked out as best it could because the kids were a little older. I didn't have infants Yeah. and need to go to work. Dylan was five when we moved to Cambridge, so he was in school or they, they had some sort of after-school programs a bit. The kids just moved through the school system, which was pretty good. And my job's both at the Color Lab and at Brandeis, were nine-to-five jobs. They didn't need me on weekends. The The Wellesley full-time stuff, by that time, kids were in high school. Right. Or out of high school or on their own. Mm-hmm. So that made it easier for me to get that balance. 
I don't think of it as being totally unbalanced. Challenging, maybe, but not totally unbalanced. And Rob was working very hard, too, so it didn't seem to be a big problem feeling guilty because I wasn't home more. I think it's kind of ironic that you found a way to make pictures literally at home when you're a photo teacher. And one of the biggest pieces of advice all photo teachers give is get out, go out and, go <laughs> right. out and take pictures. Uh, yeah, I know. I had, I had to deal with that. Uh, it's true that not everyone can, can do that, can make the pictures at home. No, but the, with the COVID, everybody's doing it. Sure, but some more successfully than others. Many, many, many are doing it unsuccessfully. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but some of those big names like uh, Christopher or somebody. Oh, the... um. He just did one about his daughter and then one about his son. And, it's a, you know, his family has become a big focus of their attention. You go, we've yeah. been doing that for 50 years, buddy. <laughs> yeah, for real. No, for real. <laughs> this is, I mean, your pictures are really pretty, but... <laughs> But come on, man, you're not the come first on. one. <laughs> yeah, you're not the first person to do this. So that there's a little bit of that, you know, like, ah, okay. And some of it is really interesting. For sure. One of the guys that I went to school with, he locked himself in a room and he successfully made interesting pictures while he was in there. But, you know, he's just a really talented guy, but not everyone can do it. Some people need the external stimulus. Of course. I mean, where would we be without Ansel Adams sitting in Yosemite for hours, well, days, months? Waiting for the snowstorm. He knows the path of the moon. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's not me. But thank God he did it. I mean, he did it so we don't have to. Right. But one thing that Lee Friedlander said, and his, his teaching approach was not real, um, I'll just say friendly. Okay. He's not a <laughs> <It> was, warm man. <laughs> he's not a warm man. <laughs> but... His advice was, yeah, just go out for 10 years and take pictures and then see what you're talking about. Right. Go, okay, that's that's good advice. But I've only got two years. But yeah. <laughs> <you know. laughs> too many, you know, we don't need all this training. Don't worry about what to take pictures of. It's all been done before. In the first 15 years or whatever, photography, it's all been done. How do you make it yours? And, you know, you go, yeah, okay, got that. That's good. So he, he had little teaching snippets that he may have borrowed them from somebody else. I don't know. I mean, he's a famous guy, so he can say whatever he wants. And you, and any teacher, or any, any mentor, you know, take it, take it, take it with a grain of salt. Cause what works for one doesn't necessarily work for other. It's like, you can have a crit with a famous guy or someone's mom. When I say someone's mom, I mean someone's mom's who, who's not a famous photographer. What works for one person doesn't work for the other. I'm going to reference our, our friends Sarah and Andrew again. Both of them are fine photographers. Andrew takes 4 million pictures a year. Sarah takes like 10 different approaches for different people. Very different. Right. You got to find what fits for you. You got to find what fits for you. <laughs> <Is> that... <laughs> Sometimes it's a hard fit, but... And it changes. It changes over time. It's like my kids are grown. They don't want to have their pictures taken anymore. Or I don't feel like I need to do that. I don't support them financially. They're their own people. I'm guessing that you support them mentally and emotionally. As best I can. You can't help but not. It's in your nature, Judy. <laughs> well, the three of them are over 50. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. I'm going to be 46 at the end of this month. Yeah, it's nuts. I won't tell you how old I am. It's okay. I'm not going to ask. All you have to know is that you've been doing this a long time. A long time. Yeah, I guess I'm just going to say thank you and goodbye. There you go. This has been great. Totally enjoyed it. Good. I'll go down and tell Rob he can sing. <laughs> 
sing your little heart out, Rob. <laughs> that was Judy. I should have gotten Rob to sing a little number for the outro. He also plays the fiddle. Anyway, it was great catching up with Judy. I used to talk to her pretty much every day, but not so much anymore. She really encouraged me when I was actively working on photo projects, and I miss that. I could use a little more photo in my life. You can find a bazillion Judy pictures on her website, judithblack.me, or M-E. Or better yet, buy her book, Vacation, on the Stanley Barker website. That's stanleybarker.co.uk slash products slash vacation. While you're there, you can check out her first book, Pleasant Street, but you cannot buy it because it is sold out. Maybe you can find it in the store if stores are open where you are. I'm locked down at the moment, so I'm at the mercy of the internet and delivery services. I'm going to leave a bunch of articles about her in the show notes, so check those out too. And of course, go over to Instagram and find her at Judith Black Photo. When you're done absorbing Judy, check out at Feel Free to Deviate on Instagram and follow, like, and comment on all of my posts. Tell your friends. I've told some of my friends, but that only goes so far. Also, go to feelfreetodeviate.com. Maybe click the Feel Free to Donate link. No pressure. Or not much pressure. I've only mentioned it twice. This is the last show of the year. Thanks for hanging out with me. I really appreciate it. I know that there are other things you can listen to, and the fact that you are listening to me makes me feel all warm inside. I'm not going to say that I'm getting choked up now, but when I was writing this, I actually did get a little choked up. I suppose that's because I'm getting old and sentimental. Stick around for more episodes, discussions, and perhaps some pivots and tweaks in the format in the next year. The first episode of 2022 will be Anna Ronsky. She's a dean at a high school in Istanbul, and she used to design costumes for the opera. Have a great holiday season, and don't get COVID. If you do get it, please do not give it to anyone else. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Bye.